0: All right, if you would please open to Revelation, chapter 2. We're going to consider the, the letter from Jesus to the church in Pergamum, verses 12 through 17. You have, some, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will write, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Holy Spirit, please give us your illumination in your word. Amen. Maybe you are a fan of history and maybe the, the wars that have taken place, uh, there is a maneuver in warfare called flanking. When the movement that goes uh, from a frontal attack, there's force of a frontal attack, and there's a flanking that comes from the side or a different angle that might come as a surprise to an opposing force. We learn from this message that, that Jesus, in writing to the church in Pergamum, they were taking Satan's frontal attack. In persecution, one of their church members died because of persecution. They take this full frontal attack, but they seem to have not paid attention to their flank. They were standing strong for Jesus in that frontal attack of persecution, but they were susceptible to the attack at their flank of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. The physical battle they had endured we see maybe had weakened their spiritual awareness and their spiritual resolve. And the attack they were losing was not so much because they were uh, failing to stand up for the faith physically, they were doing that. The battle, the flank that they were missing and they were uh, not aware of was the battle in their minds. False ideas crept in because they, they're they here, they're facing the furious intention, uh, the intense Frontal persecution of Satan himself. But yet they say, what what about this? What about that? This morning I hope that we would understand that Jesus' message to the Pergamum church reminds us to hold fast to the word so that we are protected and preserved in the battle of our minds. You know, Jesus, he reveals himself to the church with His word, he's the one who has the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Remember in chapter one, John receives this glorious vision of Jesus and Jesus looks as he's writing to the churches. He's looking at, he's reminding them of one aspect, different aspects of who he is and how he was revealed to John because they needed to understand that, that particularly for their moment and their moment was, Hey, don't forget the word because the word of Jesus rules In a world that hates him. Remember, he's he's got a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Not physically, but spiritually. And it cuts both sides. You know, the Bible... The Bible is comforting to the disturbed. We go to it when we're hurting. And it provides for us balm. We go to it in our despair... And it soothes us; it comforts the disturbed. But you know what it also does? It disturbs the comfortable, because when we, whenever we think we've got things right, we're cruising with the Lord. We read something in the Word that catches our attention. Whoa! Wait! Wait! What? And we're reminded. You know, God's Word is a consuming fire, but it does two—a consuming fire in. Two directions, so, so to speak. It, it warms the anxious heart to settle us, but it also consumes the proud. That's God's word. It does both. We're reminded of the scriptures. Psalm 119, verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Oh, it's soothing, right? Hebrews 4 Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So now we have, oh, sweeter than honey, but it divides something in me. It gets to the core of who I am. It reveals me to me, but it also reveals Jesus to me. 2 Timothy 3.16, a familiar scripture, all scripture, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The church in Pergamum needed the vivid and powerful reminder that Jesus' word is to be taken seriously. He means what he says, and he says what he means. His word is precise and swift. And this element of the vision of Jesus was given to the church because they're in the city of Pergamum, in which Jesus says is Satan's throne. It's a pretty bad place. If if Jesus himself is identifying, oh yeah, that's where Satan sits. He enjoys the authority he has in that area. It's a serious place. And they needed to be reminded of Jesus' close battle weapon of his word that they needed to be equipped with in the throne of Satan. So who is, what is the city of Pergamum? And it was the capital of Asia Minor back in the the close of the first century, and they were very closely aligned with Rome. They had political allegiance, political loyalty to Rome. They were actually the first city uh, to, to have an emperor say, you can build a temple to my honor. They also had a temple to Zeus up on the highest mountain that overlooked Pergamum. And he was said to be the savior on that highest mountain that overlooked the city. They had another temple dedicated to Asclepios, who's the god of medicine in Greek mythology, symbolized by a serpent on a pole. Now we see that still in ambulances today. But they hijacked it, even the Greeks hijacked it from Moses, remember in Exodus, or Numbers rather, when. Uh, people of God are complaining and they are just miserable. And God says, all right, I need to bring some judgment. He brought a swift word to them. And fiery serpents come and they're biting people. And then, then you see that God tells Moses, take a, a bronze serpent hanging on a pole and put it high above everybody so they can see it and be healed. Now, that is so confusing to me. Why are we going to look at a snake, God? What, what, what's that for? Because Jesus then in John 3 says, As the serpent was lifted on the pole, so people will look to me and they'll be healed. Wait, this serpent's like supposed to be Satan. What's going on here? I think what we see is that God was introducing the fact that you had to look to the curse to be free from the curse. That's what we do with Jesus. He was hung in our, in our place, in our spot, cursed for us. Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree so we could be free. We look to the curse to be saved from the curse. They also had a library in Pergamum, and this is significant, over 200,000 books. That's serious in the first century. That's a serious library. So look, they, they prided themselves in the areas of politics, religion, and medicine. They were the foremost, and their knowledge in these areas evidence their allegiance to the politics, religion, and medicine. We know that confidence in politics, confidence in religion, confidence in medicine is not automatically sinful. The difference for the citizens of Pergamon was that they were unrivaled in their allegiance to these three. There was a cultural expectation for everyone to resemble the same allegiances. I think believers in big cities face this more than, especially in our country, an increasing measure. It's been going on in Europe for a while. But there is a cultural expectation in the big cities in our country that you have to agree and and think about things the same way or else there's no room for you. And there's been a big push in the past 10 years um, equipping pastors to go back into big cities to plant churches. Because, and and to recognize how hard it is to do that now these days. When the cultural uh, force behind, the cultural allegiances are hard to speak out against. So it made it difficult for the believers in Pergamum, whose allegiance was to Jesus alone. The frontal assault from Satan came in the area of politics. And, And when we think of politics, we have to think about this, how we want security in life. That's what politics generally provides for us. Satan's frontal assault came in religion, which is how we want God to be. And it came in the area of medicine, which was how we want life to be. We take medicine to improve our quality of life. We say those things. We we take medicine in order to have the healing to give us the fruitful life, the enjoyment of life that we long for. And we can identify these same expectations in our present culture today. Political progressivism that values tolerance and has no room for biblical tradition. Tolerance has replaced that. But look, on the other side of the spectrum, my concern is that there's a political conservatism that values rights in ways that squeezes out compassion. And we end up, as I think a lot of times, the church perhaps, but conservatism can sound like, you have to do more to fix you. And you have a country that's given you the right to do that, so go do it. There's compassion that should come along with that. We see that in the Gospels. Jesus looked on the crowds and he had compassion on them. So it's in both both spectrums. But what? Religious devotion is supposed to be quiet, private, and compliant. So here's Satan's frontal assault. And there's a a frontal assault with medical authority that nullifies faith. Now let's give some understanding with medicine. I am appreciative of medicine. It's not a bad thing. It's a great thing. And it's evidence of God's common grace toward us. Jesus says the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. The unrighteous can take some Advil, and the righteous can take some Advil. I'm really thankful for that. But look, it's allegiance to medicine that gets in the, in the, the territory that we need to be careful of. And particularly within the past couple years, we've heard the term the science. It bothers me. As you can tell, I'm mocking it when I say it. Science is a, it's a helpful display of the common grace of God. But listen... Our culture is more about scientism, not science. Scientism, which is then, it's a philosophical branch when it's an ism. Because when, when science begins to say, we know why we're here and we know why things are and we know where your future is going, then all of a sudden you, you, you're another theological perspective on who you think God is. You just don't call him that. You want him out of there. So what scientism does is it removes the supernatural from all of life, and so it removes God and depends more on natural reasoning and logic. Our God's a supernatural God who gives us awareness of who he is in the scientific discoveries that we, we celebrate. It's okay to celebrate those, but when it becomes scientism, it's become a philosophical belief system. See the difference? We can hear that in the news, too. Look, the believers in Pergamum endured a frontal assault of persecution that left their mental flank open to false ideas. The pressures of living every day bombarded with false allegiances had a wearing down effect on their soul that brought in compromise to the church. See, Satan's throne is the place that decries and spouts lie after lie after lie. We don't have to have Satan physically on a throne, right? He's in our heads. We hear him. We hear his lies. We hear him tell us how miserable we are and God will never come through. Think you're standing up for him. Is he going to be there for you? That's the church in Pergamum, what they're dealing with. And then Jesus comes with an encouragement. Here's what the church is doing well. They are holding to Jesus' name in the midst of this persecution. The church was still known for Jesus. That was a great thing. They had light shining in a dark place that was known for Jesus. And they held fast with a supernatural strength in the face of cruel and criminal opposition. Their heart was to have Jesus first in all things. And they're known for it. So they're holding fast to Jesus' name. They're also holding to Jesus' faith. When Jesus commends them for not denying, he says, my faith. He's talking about the gospel message. Salvation is by faith in Christ's perfect, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection. I'm so glad we we sang about that this morning. It it provides for us. This this thing that we're doing in life is not... Well, this preaching is, of course, eternal. So I don't want to... Off script, so that's when things go off rails, too. What am I trying to say? Resurrection reminds us that this is not our home, that we're gonna be with him, and so all the attempts for us to to root ourselves to things in temporal feelings and, and life, they're gonna fade. We have to be looking at Jesus and what he's provided for us. So the gospel is about his death, his resurrection, that now he gives to us by faith, not by our desire to gain acceptance with any righteous works that we think we have, because our works are never righteous in in and of themselves. We need a righteousness that comes from outside of us, not some that's derived and located and discovered from inside. So look, this church, they held the faith, They held to Jesus' name, and they held to Jesus' faith, even when they saw one of their own killed. We don't know the background on Antipas. All we know is that he was, listen, Jesus' faithful witness. Wow. See, sometimes that matters more than a name, doesn't it? The word witness there is the word that we get martyr from. When our lives are concluded on this temporal planet, may all of us as believers in Christ have the legacy, just like Antipas, faithful witness. Faithful witness. He was killed among them, we're told. They may have seen it with their own eyes. And they still held to the faith. When he was killed by Satan, within Satan's schizophrenic attempts to kill the offspring of the woman that we see in chapter 12, the church stood strong in faith. This is hugely commendable. And Jesus says, well done. But then he gives an exhortation. He says, I have a few things against you. While the, while the believers did a great job of standing strong in the midst of persecution, Jesus is letting them know of some serious weaknesses they were holding to the faith against spiritual opposition, but they were trying to also to hold to a false teaching at the same time. We cannot hold to competing ideas about God and our lives. They're holding to, we're told, the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Uh, here is an Old Testament problem that's reappearing wearing New Testament clothing. Balaam and Nicolaitans are really the same word. One, Balaam is in Hebrew and Nicolaitan is in Greek, but they both mean conquering or destroying people, swallowing. So here, they're being swallowed up by this teaching. They're being conquered and destroyed by it. Balaam was a prophet. He was a prophet around Israel. He was not an Israelite, but he was hired by Balak, who was an opposing uh, um, Enemy of Israel, wanting, he, he gets Balaam wanting to pronounce curses on God's people. I want to attack them, and I want you to curse them first before I go in with my army. But God turned it around to where all Balaam can do three different times is bless the people of God. Makes Balak really angry. But then we're told this. Right here, Jesus says, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So while Balaam couldn't curse them with his words, he says to Balaam, I know how to do it. I couldn't do it with the full frontal assault, but how about this? Uh, Let's undo them from within. And we see the culmination of that in Numbers 25, where a man takes a Midianite woman in the congregation of everybody, brings her into his tent. Everybody saw. Sexual immorality was considered... Eh. And sorry, story, Phineas goes in, son of Eliezer the priest. He goes in and spears both of them through. And God stopped the plague and he said, Phineas was, he was zealous with my jealousy. He understood me in that moment. When Balaam couldn't pronounce a curse on Israel, he gave Balak the secret to God's people. Go after their flank with promiscuity. Food, sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. When Satan can't destroy with persecution, he will sabotage with promiscuity. These two stumbling blocks, food and sex, have been Satan's tactics against God's people for centuries. And sadly, he's got so much room and victory in those. What he thinks is victory. Satan goes after God's people with the lures of cultural idolatry and sexual immorality and he brings it through teachings in the mind. False teaching was probably cloaked in gospel language. Getting close to cultural idols was not the same as being fully immersed in them. Paul deals with this when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians because uh, the temples there were, you didn't go to a temple like we go to church. It was more, I mean, it was more, uh, you had, temples had clientele. And the clientele came to, to have, to enjoy food that was offered to the God because there was a, a connection they were having through the meal, through the food and the celebration of everybody around them. But there were also temple prostitutes all around. So you had these dual ways of worshiping. So... We know what it's like to enjoy food around here, which is really great. It is a worshipful experience, right? You eat something, it's like wow. Yeah, it is. So they're looking at that experience of food and and the the physical release within physical intimacy as worship. the the two Think about it the, the two pinnacles of physical pleasure that was temple worship. Now. It probably came in this, you know what? I know you go and, you know, you know what's going on. And Paul even tells the Corinthians, listen, we know it's just meat. We know that. But not everybody understands that. So he said, just be careful. Be careful how you do this. Well, in Pergamum, it seems like they were saying, no, we're going to go to the full party, but we're just going to understand this is different. This is different. We're not entering in the same way. Jesus is telling them, you're fooling yourselves to think that you're not entering in the same way. You're fooling yourself if you don't think you're going after... See, our culture today tries to separate body and soul spirit. We, we separate them, and we treat them like if there's two floors, so to speak. Francis Schaeffer did this. There's two floors. And we have to... We hear about it sacred and secular, you've got you've got your sacred life that you do it's disassociated from what the world that you live in and god understands that they don't connect because they don't connect in our minds so what you do with your body really doesn't matter it's really what you do inside of you toward god a dichotomy let's separate it a little bit and god all through his word says it ain't separated and we're fooling ourselves to think that it's separated Our culture honors and promotes this dichotomy all over the place. But the dichotomy denies the real connection between body, soul, spirit. It's a false reality to separate body and spirit, physical from spiritual. And what we have, and we have this in the American church, in our church, my concern is that we have a comfort with promiscuity. And that promiscuity, it's not just in sexual intimacy and, uh, and immorality. Promiscuity means just an indiscriminate association with things. We associate, we connect ourselves to things without really thinking about it. The cultural idolatry that we bump into is always lurking idols of success, idols of acceptance, idols of materialism. When we believe the cultural mindset that Jesus, more than Jesus' word, our soul is open to this idolatry and really communes with this idol rather than communing with God himself. And the eating of meat sacrificed to an idol was an emotional partnership with that idol. There are spiritual connections with idols of political agendas. There are spiritual connections with idols of lifestyles. There are, political, there are spiritual connections with idols of religious movements. We're connected. And the cultural dichotomy is seen most evidently in the pervasive sexual immorality that is treated so casually. Sex is everywhere. We're told that sex sells. And to, to apply any limitations on sex is to be seen as archaic or oppressive. As believers indwelled by the Spirit of God, we cannot think that this doesn't have a soul-deep impact on us. The sexual immorality in our culture wears on us. It wears on every single one of us. I thought of when, when Peter says of Lot, of righteous Lot, he, was, he had his righteous soul tormented by being in the midst of Sodom and Gomorrah. He was, tor- he was tormented by that. That happens to us. It happens to us when we treat physical intimacy lightly, when we treat it selfishly. And we have to see Jesus' eyes of fire when we think that if we just view something on a screen, it doesn't have any effect on anybody else. It's a lie that too many people believe that if I look at pornography, it doesn't have any effect on anybody else. It absolutely does. It has effect on our relationship with God and it absolutely has, our it has the effect of our relationship with everybody in our lives, starting with the people that are closest to us. But we think about this dichotomy, if I'm doing it in secret, nobody sees, I'm not hurting anybody. And we're lying to ourselves. We're lying to ourselves. We give in to cultural mindsets of allegiance when we're not vigilant, we're not watchful on our own souls. When Jesus' word is not held high and held fast as the authority, cultural mindsets will begin to make sense. What's wrong with tolerance? We should be tolerant. We should, but our culture is not giving the proper definition of tolerance. The proper definition of tolerance is we disagree, but we're going to be amicable toward one another. That's not what the culture is saying. Tolerance in our culture means, oh, no, you can't disagree. If you disagree, you hate. can't do that. That's illogical. But the culture says, no, that's totally logical. So how are we going to interact with that? So we speak to the, yeah, tolerance, sure. There's, there's a cultural mantra and just pride of being right. I'm right. And if everybody else would just figure out that, and we surround ourselves and social media gets us around other people that are right with us and we think, we're right. Maybe not. But we give in. So, what's wrong also with what somebody does in private is their own business and doesn't have any effect? What's wrong with self-medicating? What's wrong with that? Things begin, see, we begin to have this weird reasoning thing happen in our minds, and before we know it, we're not protecting our flank. Because these, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? They're not grounded in God's truth, and we will find ourselves amid spiritual compromise. So, how, how do we get into spiritual compromise? Lord lay three things on my heart. One is we minimize the word of God. We just don't treat it seriously. That's what Satan came to Eve with. Did God really say that? Did he really say that? In minimizing the word of God, we concentrate really more on what what we think God will see in our hearts. Well, God sees my heart. I really don't want to hurt anybody, and I'm, I'm pretty okay, and I treat people, for the most part, all right. So we minimize the word of God. We also misquote the word of God. It's what Satan did. You won't die. And we think, you know, God will just forgive me. He'll just forgive me. That's misquoting the word of God. Does he have abundant, supernatural, abounding forgiveness? Oh, yes. But it just doesn't give us permission to be jerks. We have to be cooperating with his spirit to move forward, to understand him, partake of his divine nature. So we minimize the word of God, we misquote the word of God, and we misunderstand the word of God. See, Satan says this to Eve, you'll be like God, you'll know good from evil. Remember, they really were like God, but they misunderstood the motive behind that and the reasoning behind it. So, look, we misunderstand the word of God when we think that God is simply out for us to be happy. Does he want our eternal happiness? Absolutely. But what the happiness we look for most of the time is uh, our own definition of happiness. God, if you do this for me, this will make me really happy. So he wants my happiness, so I just do what's good for me. We misunderstand the word of God. That's how we get into spiritual compromise. But when do we get into spiritual compromise? This, I think, is very important for us to comprehend. We get into spiritual compromise when we're weary, when we're just tired of fighting. We're just tired. I'm just tired. The battle's too hard. It's too long. I I want a break. I just want a break. We get into spiritual compromise when we're owed. In our relationship with God, we think that God owes us for something we've done. God, I, you, you owe me. So I'm going to take a little liberty in this direction. Or how about this? We think God owes us for our faith. God, I've trusted you. I did everything you asked me to do. I trusted you. And there's nothing. I'm going to go do what I want to do. Or just enter, entertain the thoughts that the devil so easily has access for our own repayment of things. And we get into a spiritual compromise when we're afraid, when God just takes too long to answer us. We go try to figure out our own way to do something, and it's compromise. Jesus lets them know hey, these are serious issues that you need to be watchful and diligent to look at. And he tells them repent or I'm coming to you. Repent is a good word, it's a good word for believers. And it's a good word for unbelievers. It's the first word of the gospel. It's the first thing that Jesus said. It's the first thing that John the Baptist said. It's a word of hope. It's a word of life to those who turn and see Jesus, repent of their sins, and trust him with everything. Because the consequence of not repenting was Jesus' discipline. Now, Jesus is coming to the church. He's not coming with, uh, you know, his, his judgment comes, his discipline comes first with, figuring out who's in the light, who's in the darkness, who is of the kingdom of God's beloved son and who's of the kingdom of the the domain of darkness, Satan himself. That's a judgment, a separating there. But Jesus also comes with a judgment that's in the form of discipline to refine us and kind of shave off the areas that we've been trying to build ourselves up in, in in the faith maybe incorrectly. God does that because he disciplines those he loves. He comes to us because he's protecting something. He has taken Jesus has taken our judgment, and now he will discipline us order, in order to preserve our relationship with him. He wants to keep us there. He's protecting us, so we continue to enjoy His divine nature. Look at Second uh, Peter chapter one, verses three and four. I love this concept. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Church, we are, we have the Spirit of God in us. We are partakers of God himself. And that should motivate us and inspire us to protect it. Because when we protect it, we get more of his divine nature. And we're, we're filled with to overflowing, and we love it. Because that's what God, he invites us into the fellowship. He, He invites us into the love that he enjoys as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And he gathers like a father, just gathers his children up to his bosom and says, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. And I'm so thankful that Jesus will protect our standing in his presence. He wants us to know him fully, but he also wants us to be fully known by him. There's a promise that Jesus then gives the church to help them look in the right place. And he says the first is the one who does repent will get, they they will have hidden manna. Now, remember, they're going after food sacrificed to idols. They're going after this cultural idolatry. But he says, I've got the food that never goes away. I've got the food that truly satisfies. And it's, it's taking their image back to the Old Testament when God provided for his people every single morning in the wilderness with the manna that just appeared. The food from God satisfies. Jesus says he's the bread of life. And this satisfaction, it's one that settles our cravings so we don't go after these glittering lures of cultural idolatries. So our association can be with the divine nature. So he feeds us. Come to me, I will feed you, he says. And he then gives a white stone. There are many different interpretations that could be here. Right, Jesus says, I will give, and oh, oh, I forgot to bring this out. The one that conquers, I will give him. Remember uh, Balaam and Nicolaitan, they mean to conquer. So Jesus is saying, look, you trust me, you'll conquer them. Romans 8, we're more than conquerors from him, uh, by him who saved us. So that's, Jesus really wants us to conquer. I think sometimes we walk around, this, this is weird. Uh, we walk around in weakness and brokenness. But in that weakness and brokenness, we conquer things. I don't know what that means. So we're journeying together, right? We're just journeying together. Because I know that I'm supposed to be weak, and, and when I glory in God's power, when I when I understand my weakness, I can glory in God's power that provides and, and sustains in my weakness. So here, there's a couple uh, interpretations of the white stone that, that I think Stand out to me, and uh, one has to do with a banquet, and the other one is a friendship. And the first with the banquet, a stone back then was used as a ticket to get into a banquet. Interestingly, you had a stone from the person who's inviting you to the banquet, and so you present that stone to get into the banquet. Jesus, I think, is communicating our acceptance in His kingdom with the stone. You have a white stone. You belong here," he's saying. Isn't that cool? Another one with friendship, when two friends were separating on a journey, they would separate a stone and they would write each other's name on it and give to the other person. We see that in like the hearts that are best friends do the heart thing on the chain. Same thing, they did it with stones and they wrote the name of the other person and you swapped stones and went on your journey because you didn't know if you would see each other again, but you had that stone. I think Jesus is saying, you're accepted into my banquet and you're accepted as my friend. You have my name with you. So that white stone is acceptance. We have provision in manna. We have acceptance. And there's a new name. I do think the white stone, the hidden manna is addressing the uh, going after the food sacrifice to idols. That white stone is going after those who are sexually immoral. Because everybody who is sexually immoral is just going after acceptance. He says, you have my acceptance. You don't have to run after those things. And he says a new name. It's a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I think Jesus has a name for us that we will find out in heaven. I think we see he loves nicknames, calls James and John Sons of Thunder, calls Thomas Twin, calls Simon Peter, he likes nicknames. I think he's got a special name for all of us. I, I have enjoyed in, in raising my children. I, I, I have a little nickname for each one of them. And I love that. Of course, as I've grown older, I've recognized that I can't say it in front of the wrong people because then they get embarrassed by it. But if, I am, if I'm texting one of them or in a group, they know their nickname that I have for them. It's special. And it's special to me. It's really special to me. And I know it's really special to them. And, and I think of that, like Jesus has a name for us, and it's really, it's really special. Nobody knows it except him right now. But what a joy when we get to find out that name. What a joy that he says, here is your nickname. Somebody really needs to get out of a group text, I think. well church listen we want to stand strong in the acceptance that we have in Christ amen we want to stand strong in that acceptance and we want to strengthen our flank by knowing Jesus word of love and his pronouncement of love over us amen let's pray Lord oh we know we have an enemy and he Prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But Jesus, we stand on your promise, Lord. I first ask, Lord, that we would we would have grace for repentance. We would embrace your conviction. And where there are areas that we are giving in to a cultural identity and allegiances that needs to be hemmed in, pulled back, and restored to you, God, I pray that that if there if there are, are Is sexual immorality taking place in our lives? Even if we're rationalizing it, thinking that it's not as bad as it could be. God, we we repent. And we come to you. And we ask for your hidden manna. We ask for your provision. We ask that we would understand our acceptance and your love. So as to walk out the light of truth uh, in a world that hates you. And against an enemy that wants to persecute us and sabotage us. So, Lord, you are the one who has conquered death to give us that life to walk in, and we pray we walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so look, in that resurrection life, we remember Jesus saying, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Amen. God bless you.